So, how many people have been following this, um, this royal, the, the royal couple coming to Canada? They've left the, the, the under, under the, the kingdom of, of Britain. They're no longer, they don't longer want to be a prince and a princess. Ugh, I don't, I, I don't care anything about it. But for the most part, this is a little bit of a stereotype because maybe I'm wrong. This, this is kind of a female thing. Okay? When the royal wedding happened a little while ago, there, it, it seemed to be a female thing. Maybe there was guys really interested. I just don't remember being in a, like a church foyer and hearing somebody go, Hey, Rick, you want to come over and watch the uh, royal wedding on, uh, on the weekend? <laughs> of course you can wear your PJs. <laughs> I mean, I was, born in, I was born in Great Britain, so I guess I was supposed to care by birth, but I actually don't. I really don't. Uh, my British family, on the other hand... They, it's such a big deal. The, the wedding was, this whole controversy is. And, and that wedding, it's estimated that close to 2 billion people tuned in to watch. Why? Well, I've asked a number of people. Their thoughts are like, why do you think this is? And it kind of comes to the conclusion it's because it involves a princess. It's like, that's not something really that common these days. People camped out. Just so they could see the royal, like for days, just so they could see the royal couple drive by. There's just something, I guess there's something fascinating about seeing a, a, a prince and a princess getting married, moving to Canada. Um, and, and like, there's, there's, such, there's such hype around them being in Canada, and, and some people are excited by it, some people are angry because we're hearing that maybe our taxpayer money has to has to pay for their security while they're here, and it's just it's like, but it, there's, there's just something fascinating about a prince and a princess in this day and age. And, and the only other time, we kind of alluded it to, to it before, but the only other time you kind of see that is in Disney movies. You have a prince, and he chooses a girl, and she's usually a, of like a, a regular upbringing, and they face all kinds of perils like evil witches and wicked stepmothers, and, and against all odds, they somehow get married in this glorious ceremony, and then we talked about this a little bit last week. There's always this line, and they lived happily ever after. Like every Disney romance says they lived happily ever after. And it's so clean, it's so fantastic, and there's a reason the movie ends right there, because it's a lot harder to start there and sell a movie that begins with a wedding and then shows Cinderella having children and postpartum depression. You don't sell tickets with Prince Charming falling out of love with Sleeping Beauty, spending too many nights drinking with the Seven Dwarfs, and seeing a counselor to try to save their marriage. That doesn't sell tickets. Because when you walk down the aisle, and there aren't birds holding up the train of your wedding dress, and you say, for better or worse, I do, statistics tell us that happily ever after is actually not that easy. 41%, according to Stats Canada, approximately 41% of marriages will end in divorce before their 30th wedding anniversary. 41%. What that number doesn't include is those marriages that are still together, but if you asked him and you asked her, they'd tell you, it's not that happily ever after. And many of us grew up and we saw all kinds of examples of marriage around us. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your in-laws. Maybe it was your neighbors. Maybe it was people in church. Unfortunately, the number of marriages where we truly get this snapshot of things 
And we would describe as really happy seems to be quite low, which leads us to the question, is there such a thing as happily ever after? I think it's a question every unmarried person here dreams of, that dreams of being married asks themselves. Is there such a thing as happily ever after? It's a question that even married people are asking because thus far in the marriage, there have been some bumps and bruises, and happily ever after kind of feels like a stretch at times. But somewhere inside us, even though the odds seem like they're stacked against us, we believe that it's possible to live happily ever after, and we're going to be the ones to do it. We, we see ourselves being that older couple who are sitting in the nursing home, holding hands still, and against all odds, no matter what anyone says, it's going to be us. But the truth is, it's something we're not that well equipped to do. See, falling in love is easy. You all can fall in love. Just hang out in a youth group any night. You'll see it. Falling in love is, is easy. Having someone feel the same way about you, that's harder. And, and getting someone to stay in love with you is even harder. It doesn't happen by accident. This morning, we'd start, we'd t- we started a three-part series, like I said, called Some Assembly Required, recognizing if you've ever built like an Ikea bathroom cabinet or you've ever got like a kid's bike that came in a box and you're like, oh, I wish this was all pre-assembled. There's so many parts. And if you're anything like my dad, you never read the instructions. You just try to put it together and then figure out, I don't know what these six parts are left for. You know that it's, it, it's, it's tough. But in this series, we're hoping that we can give you some of the tools and some of the things that you're going to need to make sure that you live happily ever after with that special person. Think about the first time you fell in love with your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or cell phone. How, how, did you, how did you know you were in love? Well, most times it's because you felt weird. You had these feelings. You had these, maybe you called them butterflies. You couldn't stop thinking about him or her. And you freaked out about how you looked. Like now it's just like, well, this, this, is, my, this is my ratty shirt. This is my cutoff t-shirt, right? But back then, you're like, you, you were like in the mirror for hours before you went to see them. When they walked in the room, the room stopped. And you only noticed each other. And it all was about feelings. Like, this is the one. You didn't really have a plan for happily ever after that point. You just figured if you could stay in each other's proximity, this feeling, this electricity that you've got, that's, it's going to be always like this. It'll always be like this. Here's how much I didn't have a plan for happily ever after. When I met Jen, I was 16 years old and she was 15. And every relationship I had, if you want to call it that, up to that point was a couple weeks or a couple months. And then you got dumped behind the dumpster, literally. Or someone passed you a note saying, hey, we're not going out anymore. You know, that was like grade four, grade five, got broken up with. In high school, I remember there was this couple, and their names were Greg and Casey. Now, this was serious. We're talking grade 10. Like, it was serious. And this was the longest relationship I had ever seen anybody dating. For two years, they dated. And we were like, man, this this is the strongest ever. And then one day, the school got rocked because Casey dumped Greg. And we were like, 
if Casey and Greg can't make it, there's no hope for any of us. And so in my feeble adolescent mind, I figured two years was probably the expiry date on any relationship unless you can marry them because that's when the butterflies left. And since marriage seemed like it was something you did in your early 20s, I was figuring anybody who's dating in their teens, they don't have a chance because that two years is going to be up and then you didn't do it. So when Jen comes along at 16 years old, and she's unbelievable, she's pretty, and she's funny, and she's smart, and she's fun to be around, easy to talk to, and I thought, man, this is exactly the type of girl I want to marry, but no, I'm only 16, it's too early. If I had met her a few years later, then then maybe I could have, maybe if I was like in my 20s, I could have married her and locked her in, but now at 16, we don't stand a chance. Like, it was so dumb. But that was the extent of my plan. Like, hope you don't find the right one until later. And then lock her in like a mortgage rate. (laughs) And so, so eventually, we we dated for five years, and at the five-year mark, I, I was 21, proposed. Now, here's a little... Side tip for those of you that are younger and haven't done the proposal yet. Okay, guys, listen. You're going you're gonna to need this. Put in a little bit of effort into the proposal. Because it doesn't seem like a big deal now. But later on, she's going to be talking with her friends. And they're all going to be talking about how you proposed. And if your proposal story is, well, he waited till there was a commercial in our TV show. And he did it before the the commercial was done, then, then she's, going to, she, she's going to have that story forever. And so I was like, I got to do something that uh, kind of gets her, her attention kind of thing. So it seems like a big deal, but it was actually cheaper than you think. I actually chartered a plane and for like $300, which is actually not that much, uh, it flew out of Toronto Airport, uh, the, the, the uh, island airport, flew right over... Um, along the coastline, flew back during sunset. And so this is my moment. It's just me, Jen, and the pilot. And so I was like, I've always like, I'm going to get down on one knee. So I get down on one knee, and I ask her to marry me, and she tears in her eyes. She says yes. And then I realize I'm, I'm stuck. I'm wedged between the seat, and I can't, can't get out. And, <laughs> and so... I was, I, I was basically on my knee for a long time asking for her hand in marriage. <laughs> Falling in love is, is easy. Happily ever after requires a plan. Jesus gives us that plan early on in his ministry. In, in speaking to his disciples, he tells them when it comes to his, your interactions with others, he says, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And that goes for friendships, it goes for romantic relationships, it goes with interactions of any other. Kids, this goes for those that you are in school with, your classmates, it goes with the the, the neighbors. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Love like I've loved you. If you're here this morning and you're married, and you want to be one of the happily ever after stories that people point to, the Bible is actually a blueprint. If you're hoping to be married one day, same thing. Kids, again, right now you're thinking, ugh, boys. 
girls have cooties. Trust me, it's going to change. It will change. Or if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know if marriage is in the cards for my future. The same principles can be applied to any friendships, platonic relationships as well. So this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible app, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. But in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And Paul was a key factor in the spreading of the message of Jesus. Even though he wasn't personally around during Jesus' ministry. But he, comes, he, but he became close with all the people who did walk with Jesus, who traveled with Jesus. And so he comes to some conclusions about Jesus based on his teachings and the life that he has heard about. His letters would be an encouragement to many. And in his letter to the Greek people of Philippi, he says, based on all the conversations that I've had with people who knew him in every, everything I observed, here's what it looks like to love people the way Jesus loved people. And like I said before, this can be applied to any relationship. But I want to focus this morning on the one-on-one relationship in marriage. He said this, do nothing out, oh, sorry, kids, I skipped over that one. You're going to need that word. I skipped that one a little too quick. You're going to need that word. Write that down real quick. This was one I said before, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And then Paul says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, this term selfish ambition is a competitive word. If you want to stay in love, don't compete with each other. And I don't mean in, like, board games. Jenna and I love to compete in board games. Beating her is so much fun. I, actually, the best part in a board game is winning. But if I can't win, there's a very close second, making sure she doesn't win. And so if I get to this spot where I feel like I don't have a chance to win, all my focus, all my energy comes on making sure that she doesn't win. So if we're playing a game where it's like, okay, you get to pick, somebody has to skip a turn, I'm like, Jen, skip a turn. If we're playing Monopoly and you win on my property and you want to owe me later, because you don't want to have to tear down the house that you have on your property. I'm like, Jen, tear them down, tear them down. That's not the kind of competition I'm talking about, although that's probably not helping my marriage any. I'm talking about things like she's telling a story and she's getting the details wrong and you have to jump in because, well, she's not telling it good enough or she got something wrong. Just let her tell the story. I mean, I've done that before. But it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then Paul says this. And if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write this down. If you underline or highlight this, take note of the sentence. Because this is the essence of what it means to love like Jesus and live happily ever after. He says this. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. What that means is act like he is more important than you. Make life decisions with the idea that she is more important than you. Have you ever been around somebody who was like, you felt, oh, this person's way more important than me? I don't mean like having more value as a human being because that's not the point. But in the context of the situation, have you been around people that are more important than you? 
going back to the royal wedding, in that moment, Harry and Meghan are the most important people wherever they are. And if you looked around, I didn't watch it, but I did see the highlights. If you look around, they panned the audience. People like David Beckham, Elton John, even the Queen, who is almost always the most important person, no matter what room she walks in, in that moment is not the most important. It's the wedding couple. A wedding is different. At my wedding, I was important. Not as important as Jen. But people lined up to talk to me. And this doesn't happen when I'm walking around in the grocery store. In that moment, I was important. Anyone who, knows, anyone who knows me or has been in my office knows that my favorite basketball player of all time is Michael Jordan. So one year I'm in college, and Michael Jordan is hosting a celebrity golf tournament in Toronto. So my college buddy Chris, Jen, and I bought tickets and went. Now some of you are thinking, I don't even like to play golf. I can't imagine paying money to watch other people play golf. But watching celebrities up close, it was kind of a neat thing. Besides, I just wanted to be close to where Michael Jordan was. And so as, as Michael Jordan got to the final hole, so in the 18th hole, and he walks over to put, in, put, the, put the ball in, and I'm standing at the back of the green, and I'm looking over where his cart is, his golf cart is, and there's this mob of people around his cart because that's where he's got to go after he's done. And they've got like life-size posters and all kinds of like jerseys and stuff for him to sign. And I remember saying to Jen, I looked over there and I'm like, I'd love to get his autograph. And I don't really care about autographs that much, but if there was one, if you asked me if there was one autograph I would like, I would have said it was Michael Jordan. So I'm like, I said to Jen, I'd love to get his autograph, but I'm not fighting. That's craziness over there. So Michael Jordan comes over, and he's about to putt. And just as he's about to putt, this little kid right in front of me yells out, Michael! And to his surprise, Michael Jordan turns and looks at him and says, what? And the kid just freezes. He doesn't know what to say. So, so Jordan puts the ball in, picks up his ball, and he has the same thought I had. He's looking over at the crowd, and he's thinking, there's no chance I'm going over there. And so he turns, and he comes to the kid who yelled out his name. And he takes a pen or a marker, and he signs something for him. And I'm standing there. I had just bought a brand new, so Michael Jordan has two, had two sponsors there, Nike and Wilson. I had this brand new white Wilson hat. And I'm standing there, and I hand him the white hat, and he signs the, the, the uh, brim of the hat. I remember taking the hat in my hand, and my hands are shaking. And I, and I tried to get out a thank you, but it came more like, thank you. And, and I'm walking away, and my hands are shaking, and I'm looking at my, my newfound prized possession. And meanwhile, what I don't realize is, is that the crowd that was over there is now pushing over here to where he is, and he actually shut down after about five or six autographs, shut it down and left because people were getting pushed and he was afraid that the little kids were going to get like trampled and stuff. And I'm walking away and I've got my, my, my hands are shaking. I'm looking at this thing. And what I don't realize is my, not, my soon-to-be wife is on her hands and knees, knocked down, trying to crawl out of this pack. She's got grass in her hair. She's panting for breath, trying to get out of here. And I don't have a clue. I'm walking with this... And I'm, I go to show it. Do you see? 
And I see her crawling out of this thing. It, it, it was Michael Jordan's tournament. Michael Jordan was the most important person in that contest, context. And if he had have asked me in that moment, would you go get me some water? I would have been, I'll be right back, Mr. Jordan. Yet, the more important person in my life was now on her hands and knees fighting for her life with grass in her hair. We do this, we do this at times, though. We get fixated on something that's not important. And someone who is important, we don't even notice. What if we treated our spouse that way? Like they're the most important person in the room. Every day, like you're more important than I am. But what if they take advantage of it? Maybe. How do I know it's going to come back in my favor? You take that risk. But Jesus didn't spend the bulk of his ministry talking about how others are expected to respond to you. He talked about how you're supposed to respond to others. That's all you get to control. And then, then Paul writes this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I'm pausing to allow the kids to write down what they need to write down. Who being in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made him, himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, if you want the formula to a bad marriage, keep score. Draw a line in the sand and decide that I'm going to make sure everything is 50-50. You had a night out with your friends. Now it's my turn to get a night out with my friends. You cooked supper this many times. Now, well, you got some work to do, buddy. Who, we, are, we are equals in this marriage, but when you keep score... Someone always owes someone else. And Paul writes that even though Jesus was equal with God, he never used that to his advantage. He never flexed his sonship with others as he walked the earth. Because if he did, if Jesus actually cared about his position and how much he deserved, we would all owe. Because he was God in human form. He was always the most important person in the room. He was, it was always his wedding. It was always his celebrity golf tournament. Instead, he served. When he didn't have to, he served. It was important to him. He wanted to show us how deeply he cared. And if that wasn't enough, he humbled himself one step further and then died on the cross for our sin. Paul says in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does that look like in your marriage or your relationships? It means you value her more than you, and you act like you believe that every single day. And if you could get a hold of that, 
Like if you could truly get a hold of that, the only competition in your relationship is who gets to value who more. And when you see that, wow. Wow. I've seen this a few times where this is incredibly evident. As a guy, I used to think that all that romantic stuff was kind of cheesy. Because guys don't necessarily encourage each other when it comes to that stuff. Uh, nobody's like, oh, Jimmy, uh, I can't believe what you did for your wife. Good for you, buddy. You've, got, you've inspired me. Instead, it's like, whoa, what did you do? Somebody's in the doghouse. Obviously, if you're buying flowers. We, we're, guys, we poke fun at each other when we do romantic things. But I remember during one of our pre-marriage sessions, they brought in someone from our church that, that we knew to speak. And for one of the first times ever, I saw someone who was completely unashamed to shower his wife with flowers and little things that meant a lot to her. And he didn't care what anyone said because she was his treasure. And he wanted her to never forget that. And I thought, wow. So this is something that I am determined to do. Still, do I have lapses? Oh, yeah. Is there periods and seasons where I totally forget? Absolutely. But it's the goal every day for me to show Jen that I value you more than me. It's a decision. It's a decision. Because it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus made a decision. He decided to place himself under us. It's a verb. It's an action. He decided that he was going to lay down what he deserved, what was due to him. He was going to lay down his glory. He was going to lay down his honor. He was going to lay down what was normally given to a king. And he did that for relationship. He did that because he valued love more than what, what we deserve. He, he, valued, he valued relationship more than what he should have got. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your marriage, your future marriage, your friendships? Well, you can either protect what you think you deserve. You can always be right. You can always have your way. Or you can treat the other person like they're more valuable than you. But you really can't do both. You really can't do both. You can't value somebody higher than you and want your way, and want to be right all the time, and protect what you think you deserve. So maybe you're thinking about your marriage and wondering, what do I need to do to set it on course for happily ever after? I'm going to invite the worship team as I close. If you're not sure where to start, this is, this is, this is important. This might be helpful. A number of years ago, I was at a leadership conference, and they were talking about the workplace, and they said something that stuck with me, and they said this, ask yourself, if I was replaced in my job tomorrow, what would the next person coming in to replace me, what would they see as missing, and what would they start doing? Then do that. Do that. Whatever the next person coming in looks at and says, okay, this person wasn't doing this in their job and this is is an absolute need, they're going to come in, they're going to start doing something. Well, rather than somebody come in and replace you, just start doing that. 
If your wife or your husband replaced you tomorrow, what would the next guy or girl do that you're not doing? Then do that. Do that. Don't wait till there's a replacement. How would he treat her? How would she treat him? What is it, what is it that there's a, that, that's, that's happening that's a need? Just don't wait. Do that. See, when you love someone, it's a verb. And when you love someone and you act on it, the feelings follow. Our society has a low pain threshold when it comes to marriage. Because it's like when the feelings disappear, we conclude, well, now it's time to go back to when we were in love. When the person was new. So maybe I should get someone new. But when, you, when, the, when your love is an action, it's a verb, when you value someone higher than you, you'd be surprised the feelings follow. Go back to when you first fell in love. Because God put her, God put him in your life as a gift. And you saw her or him as a gift. You aren't looking for the return policy. Focus on what you need to do right now. Value him. Value her more than yourself. And if you do, what would happen? As you stand together. We're going to sing this song again, Reckless Love. And I want you to look at how God feels about you. And I want you to think about how much he values you over him as you sing these words. And then I want you to draw the parallel. Those of you that are married here this morning, do you feel the same? Do you feel the same value? 